Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage Podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage Podcast, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and subject matter experts who explore the intersection between strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. Now to our regular listeners, thank you so much for coming back. And if it's your first time here, we really appreciate you joining us. This week, it's time for The Rendezvous, our monthly installment where the Mitchell team digs into stories you've seen in the headlines. So truth up front, you've probably noticed we've missed The Rendezvous for the past two months. And the reality is we had a bunch of great content that was stacked up and it just crunched our schedule. So we're back in the groove this month. And clearly there's a lot going on these days, especially on the Hill, plus the continued fighting in Ukraine. And we've got some developments to discuss regarding China. All right, so to talk about this, we've got our very own Dean of the Mitchell Institute, General Deptula. Hey, Slick, how you doing? I'm doing great, sir. Thanks for being here. We also have Daniel Rice joining us today. Hey, Slick, thanks for having me. Yeah, I always love having you on the show. And of course, uh, uh, none other than Doug Berkey. Hey, man, great to be here. Awesome. Well, let's get uh, started with you, General Deptula. The House and the Senate are moving their uh, respective defense bills along, and a recent message Air Force leaders have been pushing and want committees to adopt is this idea of divest to invest, and it's come up uh, in recent speeches and congressional testimony. It also ties to the strategy we saw in their budget request for uh, fiscal year 2023. So would you mind to explain what this approach means, and do you think Congress is going to buy off on it? Yeah, Slick. Uh, First, let me address what the actual issue is so our audience understands. Uh, The Air Force is simply under-resourced for the missions that it's been tasked to accomplish under the national defense strategy. Now, this isn't just me making that proclamation. That's the assessment of previous Air Force secretaries and chiefs of staff. If you go back and take a look at just a couple of years ago, what was being said in congressional testimony and speeches over several years, senior Air Force leaders have stated that message. The Air Force is simply too small to do all the missions being asked of it. I'll give you an example. In 1991, the Air Force had 134 fighter squadrons. Today, it's got just 55. But the demands on the service are much greater today than in 1991. Now, to find out the reality between the force structure the Air Force has and what it needs, the Congress directed the Air Force to conduct an in-depth analysis aimed at outlining what the Air Force actually needs to implement the national defense strategy. That analysis was completed in 2018, and the results verified that the Air Force is too small for what the nation's asking it to do. We have 312 operational squadrons today. The Air Force we need came up with 386 operational squadrons to meet the needs of the national defense strategy. That wasn't a program plan That was an answer to the question of what does the Air Force need to execute the national defense strategy. So the current force structure today is about 25% smaller than what's required. The analysis, according to Air Force leadership, presented an honest assessment of the Air Force America needs to fight and win in future conflicts. And the analysis was driven by strategy and not by budget. The chief of staff at the time, Dave Goldfein said this, quote, 
We usually have the dialogue about the Air Force we can afford. This is different. This is about the Air Force we need to present credible options to compete, deter, and if deterrence fails, win. The Secretary of the Air Force at the time, Heather Wilson, understood it would take time to support and budget what was required for the Air Force we need. We aren't naive, she said, but we do have an obligation to be honest with our countrymen and tell them, as those who came before us have done in their time, what should be done. We must do that. All right, sir. So where is the current secretary on all of this? Well, with that background, the approach of the current secretary, Mr. Kendall, recognizes that the Air Force is under-resourced, but pragmatically realizes that resourcing is not going to be provided in the amount necessary to both increase capacity and capability over the tenure of his term in office. He's arguing that the Air Force will have to make up for its capacity deficit with cheaper unmanned systems in the near term to make the investments required to field the capability appropriate for peer competition with China. His position is that, quote, we have to worry about capabilities. And what we need to do is get to the next generation, unquote. So his legislative strategy is to make divestments in legacy aircraft to free up the funding that is part of building a more capable force for the future because the Congress is not going to provide that necessary funding in the near term. Mr. Kendall went on to say recently that there's a perception that we're creating a gap, but that gap already exists today between the capabilities the Air Force has and those that its adversaries field. Here's his point. By having more of the things that are not adequate today and using resources for those, as opposed to getting onto the things we need to close that gap, that would be a mistake. So Secretary Kendall's point is we've got to get to the future. All right, General, what's your assessment of, of his approach then? Well, a couple points on that approach. First, the Air Force does not create the funds for its operations capabilities and capacity to execute those capabilities. The Congress provides those funds based upon the president's budget request. If there's a deficit in the funding necessary to meet the demands of the national defense strategy places on the Air Force, that's not an issue of what the Air Force can afford because the current budget appropriation is arbitrary and not tied to any strategy. It's an issue of the president's budget not being sufficient for the Air Force to accomplish what the nation's asking it to do. There's factual evidence that the Air Force has been significantly underfunded for decades. The Air Force was funded less than the Army and the Navy from 1994 through 2021. That's 28 years. And that situation continues with the 23 budget proposal. The Air Force is simply underfunded. The nation can afford to fund it. The question is, does this administration want to fund what's required for the Air Force to accomplish a national defense strategy or not. Second, in the current FY23 future year's defense plan, the Air Force is planning to divest 1,463 aircraft, but only buy 467. 
That plan's going to decrease its force by 996, about a 25% force structure reduction to the service that's already rated as weak in an annual military assessment. That puts the Air Force at enormous risk just at the time that analysts agree that China will have the capacity and capability to easily invade Taiwan, 2027. So the notion of divesting to invest entails enormous risk if it results in such a weak air force that it encourages our adversaries toward aggression. And that's the path that the current president's budget plan puts us on. The solution is to increase the resourcing of the air force so that it can afford both sufficient capacity and capability to meet the needs of the defense strategy, not just one or the other. Now, the Department of Defense, people are going to say, okay, well, where's that money going to come from? Well, the Department of Defense does have the budget to do that if it would take a joint approach and shift back to the Air Force some of the over $53 billion a year that the Army's received more than the Air Force for the 20 years following 9-11. It's this and the 28 years of neglect of funding of the Air Force that's made it now the oldest, smallest, and least ready in its history. Now, regarding Secretary Kendall's point in building advanced capabilities, he's spot on. We do need new capabilities to replace 60-year-old bombers and 40-year-old fighters, new munitions that can replace bombs and missiles that are based on half-century-old concepts, as well as space weapons that can be used to gain dominance over China in that domain. With respect to your question, if the Congress will go along with the divest-to-invest approach, I guess I'd tell you to a degree, because this Congress doesn't want to add any significant amount to the defense budget. But remember, all politics are local, so there's going to be resistance to aircraft divestments in the districts and states in which they reside. Yeah, sir, I really appreciate that that insight and, and hitting it home that uh how small the Air Force has gotten today. Um, I want to switch over to Doug. Uh, Doug, you released uh, an op-ed about this a little while ago. So what's your take? Yeah, obviously everything General Deptula said really set the stage for this as well. And, and the reason why I wrote the op-ed was anticipating the cycle that's coming up here in the Hill where the defense bills are, are moving through. But the fundamental point here is that to to shrink the service further is going to probably create a tipping point. It's not just about the aircraft. It's about the entire enterprise. It's about the the pilots and airmen that, that fly them. It's about the maintainers. It's about the infrastructure that supports them, depots, maintenance, you know, basing, all of that. If you take it down too far, you collapse the available capacity that is servicing a set amount of demand around the world. We don't control that demand. Our adversaries control that. So you risk bringing down the capacity and those that are left are spun even harder. And so it is very hard to retain those personnel because it wrecks them literally, individually, in their families. The infrastructure for support and maintenance and all that gets strained to a breaking point. Uh, An example of this is B-1. Right Around the time Afghanistan kicked off, they retired a third of the force to, quote, save money and reinvest in the airframe. Well, guess what? The money disappeared, went somewhere else. And so those airframes were surged to meet wartime demand in Afghanistan and Iraq, and and that didn't stop for 20 years. 
and and it literally has wrecked the B1. It has to be retired now because it is trash. And and those people were rode very, very hard. And it got to a point where the head of Global Strike Command actually had to admit to Congress that the readiness rate for that aircraft was was unbelievably low, somewhere around you know, like 15 20%. It, it was very, very low. So we don't want to do that elsewhere across the force. There's another factor here in play. While I appreciate Secretary Kendall's desire to get the Air Force uh, modern set of capabilities, I would argue we're there. We have postured for this to be the decade to buy. So if you look at what we've done for the last 30 years, it has been setting up a lot of programs that have been uh, delayed, curtailed, et cetera. But this, they've all been shoved into this decade. The existing airframes that they are going to replace are now so old and fragile that you either replace them now or the mission goes away uh, because you have a lack of serviceable aircraft. I'm talking literally structural integrity. They cannot fly any longer. The F-15C is a good example of that. And so J-STARS is there as well. B-1, like I mentioned, there are a lot. AWACS is, is a big topic. So if you look at the KC-46, F-35, B-21, T-7 trainer, MH-139 helicopter, which replaces the, the venerable Huey, if you look at where GBSD is, all of these programs, they have to work because the demand signal for their missions has not gone away. And, and these are the solutions that have been created. And even if they're 70, 80% solutions, you have to go with this. And we've already sunk billions in, in their development and testing and all that. The cheapest, most effective, efficient option we have is just buy them. Uh, and, and this is something, if you want also these next-gen technologies to succeed, you have to get today's force healthy to allow the time for those new technologies to mature. And I like everything Secretary Kendall's talking about. It's all really good stuff, but it's all very ambitious technologically. And innovation does not work well at the end of a gun to perform yesterday for less cash kind of deal. And so this is something where to get healthy today, to buy the room, to innovate tomorrow. And that solves your near-term issues. It gets you to where you need to be for the long term. In terms of Congress's specific result on, on how they're going to weigh this, I think the House is going to go along with more of the, the divestiture plans. I think the Senate is going to push back more. I think both will be more comfortable with divestitures when there are current aircraft coming off the line that can do one for one replacement. Tanker, for example. They're allowing tankers to go because KC-46s are flowing in. If there is not something directly in line to backfill and there's a lot of risk, I don't expect them to roll. I think F-22 probably gets pushback because NGAD is so ambitious we don't even really know what it is overtly too much, and that includes a lot of members on the Hill, aside from those that are specifically read in. I think something like that does get pushed back. Hopefully F-35 gets pushed back up because everybody understands how fragile the fighter force is, and the foot cannot come off the gas with B-21, GBSD, all of that. Yeah, Doug, thanks thanks for that insight as well. Um, you know, I think the, the Air Force fighter buy is going to be massively uh, affected by this defense bill. Uh, you know, we saw the F-35 cut way back. Uh, the Air Force is making a run on F-22s, like you mentioned. Uh, and the macro F-15 EX buy, while, you know, it initially surged uh, in the near term, it's been cut. So, General Deptula, what are your thoughts on this? And uh, what do you think Congress will come down, you know, uh, on this perspective? Well, Slick, remember, as Doug alluded to, the House and the Senate are two different bodies. Uh, the House is uh, likely not positive 
to a boost in F-35 production. But uh, I think the Senate will likely push up the numbers to some degree. I expect both to be skeptical of retiring the F-22, the most advanced fighter in the world. Why in God's name in a time when you're talking about capability, would you even plan to retire uh, this premier aircraft that gives us uh, such an incredible advantage relative to our adversaries? And the answer is, well, it's expensive. Well, you know, part of the cost-effectiveness equation is the effectiveness piece. And I'm sorry, but I got to go back to the fact that people keep on only evaluating expense on the basis of either operate unit operating costs or unit procurement costs. They don't look at the fact of cost per desired effect or what does it require using other aircraft if you didn't have the kinds of capabilities the F-22 has. So the fact of the matter is, individually, it may be expensive to operate. But if it can accomplish what 10, 20, 30 other aircraft would be required to accomplish, it's cheap. So that's a point that you're going to see people make on this issue. Um, The F-15EX, that's a challenging one to predict. I don't think the Congress will let the Air Force turn off F-15EX production uh, as easily as the Air Force seems to think they will. Uh, but that's another one that, that kind of runs counter to the Secretary of the Air Force's perspective in terms of what he articulated. He doesn't want to spend money on essentially legacy systems um, when we need to advance to a future very much different. And I get it. The F-15EX has some great electronic capabilities, but it's still the same airframe that was designed in the 1960s initially produced in the 1970s. So a couple of my thoughts. Yeah, I just want to jump in on this one too. There's an article that came out this week that was was pretty interesting. It actually published some cost data for Chinese uh, J-20s, which is kind of their F-22 equivalent, so to speak. They had that thing priced out, Chinese cost, at about $120 million a copy. And so, you know, when you look at that, and when you look at NGAD, Secretary had talked about recently that it might be north of $200 million per copy. And then we have leaders beating up F-35 and F-22 as, you know, quote, expensive. What are we talking about? You know, when you balance capabilities that General Deptula is referencing, and when you look at the other options that exist, something like the F-35 is ungodly competitive. In fact, right now it's cheaper than the F-15EX. We really need to take this into account when we're looking at the buys and how we manage them and all that. If you slow down the build, the cost goes up. It's as simple as amortizing your overhead expenses. And the bigger the number, the better it is. And so I think that we need to be very, very careful about self-inflicted gunshot wounds when the options we're bringing to the table are very, very good. I mean, what, what are we holding out for? And in fact, I did some math where I, I just took, you know, if, if you were to buy an F-15C today, um, you know, back 1980s dollars when we were buying them and all that. It's, it's all in the zone for what, what our current systems like F-35 cost. So frankly, when you consider the additive capabilities on them are unbelievably good values. And it's time we start talking about it from that perspective uh, in, instead of just beating ourselves up over things that I would argue don't exist when you look at the comps around the world. 
Yeah, and just to quickly pile on, I, you know, and for our audience to, to realize, when General Deptula, a man who personifies the F-15C and the Eagle community, says, don't build more F-15s, that's saying something. Because obviously, I, I know General Deptula, if you thought that, that a new version of the Eagle was going to take us into the future, you'd be the first one to back it. And then, Doug, to your point, the fact that these new F-15 EXs cost more than the F-35, and the complaint is the cost for the F-35, that's mind-blowing. And I'll pile on just uh, one last point, you know, from a space program perspective and overall with NASA and what we're doing with, with SLS, if the folks would realize that one SLS, that you use it, you, you fire it, and it goes away, it's, it's disposable, is the cost of two F-35 squadrons or an aircraft carrier, and we're throwing that money away instead of uh, reinvesting that in, in reusable technologies, et cetera. I don't want to keep going down this rabbit hole, but gosh, we got to really foot stomp this. So, um, so Doug, we'll just pivot a little bit here off the fighters because you recently wrote about uh, the E-7 buy uh, that was included in the budget request. So uh, what do you think Congress is going to do here? And as our listeners know, the service wants to retire a lot of the E-3 AWACS uh, in this coming year and work towards the E-7 replacement. Yeah, no, thanks for the question. And again, I wrote not bad on this because I thought it needed some airtime. This is in the heart of the matter that we we're just talking about. The technology that we want to go to, which is a very networked future with distributed sensors, processing power, command and control nodes, all that, that is a good vision. It's a great vision. It's the heart of joint all-domain command and control. We believe in that. In fact, we articulated that before the services did with our version of Combat Cloud. But it is unbelievably ambitious, and it's going to take years to mature. And in many ways, think about it in the line of air-to-air missiles. Look, we had those things in the 50s, but their probability of kill was not great. It took decades to get them to a level of dependability where we could actually count on them. Um, if you look at what a, a Sparrow did in Vietnam, it, it was not encouraging. You know, now, do we think about that reliability with missiles? Of course not. You can really depend on these things, and they're fantastic. But that took decades. They're very complex. Something like joint all-domain command and control for a, a air battle management command and control platform, that is really sophisticated stuff. So we've articulated for a long time that the service probably needs a bridge capability to allow that room for innovation to occur. There is no argument that the E3A wax and the E8J stars are done. The E8, especially, those were repurposed civilian airliners produced in the 60s that had been beaten to the ground. Uh, some that they actually acquired had been hauling cattle in third world nations, um, and then the Air Force bought them and uh, restored them and repurposed them as a C2. Um, ISR platform. AWACS were new build, but in the 70s, and they've been run really, really hard. The parts have been out of production for years on these things. The, the engine technology is back to the early 60s that's on them, so they're done. The electronics on them, too, it makes your Sony Walkman look modern. So think about what, what telecommunications was back when those things were invented. It was a, a phone bolted to a wall. The internet had not yet been invented. So it is time we get some information age command and control platforms. But like I said, the joint all-domain command and control vision, I think that's more in the 2030s, 2040s. So what's a solution that's going to take us in there? And while the service is often articulated, look, you're not going to fly a, a big wing aircraft over, over Beijing, I got it. I agree with that. 
But 99% of what we do with these things is not doing that. It's either peacetime missions, lower-end missions like a Syria thing or what we're doing with them now in Ukraine. Um, it's also engaging with allies and partners and everything else. And by the way, there are ways you can use these things that do bring down their threat that modern technology allows. For example, you don't have to turn on the aperture on a, a modern E7. You can pull sensor data from other distributed platforms and allow the command and control experts to actually use that information to run the C2 processes. That brings down the signature tremendously. So there are a lot of things that, that are positive. The biggest problem, though, is because we've dawdled on this so long, we've run the clock. So the E3s, are their mission capability rate is, is in the toilet. It's horrible. They need to go. That's not debatable. But the E7, to bring that online, they're looking at the end of the decade. So what do you do with all of these air battle managers who are an incredibly important, very sophisticated community that takes years to train? And Airmen are fundamentally connected to the airplanes they fly. It is how they stay current, proficient. It's how you keep them in the zone. You take away the airplane, you fall off a cliff. I mean, do you, do you take away an Olympic downhill skier skis and, and expect them to stay on the step? No, it doesn't work that way. So we need to find a way to bridge that capability in faster. I think there are ways that the Air Force can do that. Boeing can do it. The allies that operate the aircraft can help us. But that's got to be a priority. Rolling that in towards the end of the 2020s and cutting the AWACS fleet in half this year, which is the, the asked plan, isn't going to work. JSTARS has already run out of time. The Air Force canceled the, the bridge solution uh, because of budget, and now we're really having to, to weigh it all on very ambitious space-based capabilities and some other things. Uh, our joint partners don't believe it. Uh, which is why the Army is developing their own organic solution, which is incredibly expensive, inefficient, and does not serve a COCOM effectively because that is an Army-only solution. It's only going to serve the Army. It's not going to serve the rest of the Joint Force. We don't want to go down that rattle again. Very bad. Learn from the mistakes made on JSTARS, double down on this AWACS investment, and move out. Yeah, Doug, uh, thanks for that. I mean, you, you said it all. Um, I want to ask General Deptula, uh, I think we're all surprised to hear that Air Force leaders uh, have suggested in te testimony that the uh, B-21 buy could go down, given the role of unmanned teammates that may play in the future. So, sir, what are your thoughts on this? Well, Slick, the theoretical uh, uninhabited aerial vehicle or UAV partner is incredibly conceptual. To go soft on B-21 force structure numbers now is... Uh, extraordinarily short-sighted and frankly dangerous. PowerPoint solutions over real capability on the ramp is some of what led to the current Air Force capacity implosion. And even if the UAV solution uh, works out uh, well, which we enthusiastically support and hope that it does, by the way, the Air Force still needs much more long-range strike capacity. Capacity. Now, that's exactly what we need uh, to be able to succeed against China. Meeting future defense challenges requires significantly greater long-range strike capability, not less. So if that capability is proven through the actual development, production, deployment, and employment of B-21 partner UAVs, then yeah, perhaps at some point in the future, more of that capability can be shifted to UAVs, but that's a long way into the future. 
And talking about numbers now before the first B-21, much less one of these notional UAV partners has flown is uh, not very responsible. Let me uh, jump in with another point here, too. There are also other actions here that should cause major concern how we balance risk. The entire B-52 fleet is going to go in for re-engineering. The costs of that program are now spiking because they're realizing it is really hard to dig into something structurally, the newest asset of which was produced before the Q-missile crisis in 1962. These things have been sitting on ramps outside for decades. There are going to be problems. We saw this in the C-5 fleet. They, in fact, had to retire. They were supposed to re-engine both the C-5A and C-5B fleet, and they end up canceling and retiring the entire C-5A fleet because Costs spiked so badly, they had to just double down on the Bs and, and economize that way. So if you look at how fragile the B-1 fleet is, that's, that's going to go fast. If you look at where the B-52 fleet is and how many will be down for this re-engineering program at a given time for several years, even if it goes well, which I hope it does. And then you look at the B-2, the Air Force is trying to sunset that fast. What are we doing negotiating against ourselves saying we should buy down capacity of the future solution before we have any of this solved. The bomber force is already the smallest the Air Force has ever had in history. And any defense strategist will come at you and tell you today, we need more survivable, penetrating, long-range strike solutions. And this is just crazy. We've got to stop doing this. And by the way, even the harshest defense skeptic on the Hill who's right into the B-21 program comes away saying, it's a good program. This thing is tracking. And we're pulling off on the throttles on this right now. This is nuts. We have got to stop doing it. And we're doing it to ourselves. This isn't some other service leader coming at us or, or somebody that's against defense. This is our service leaders. This has got to stop. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, as excited as I am about, uh, uh, you know, man-on-man teaming, as we call it. I was just out at Up Summit, uh, which was an incredible event. But just the bureaucratic red tape of getting the FAA to allow these things to fly in a way that we envision them as our wingmen uh, across the, the, the Nellis Ranges to train. I mean, it's going to take a long time uh, to happen. So I couldn't agree with, with uh, everything that you all have said so far. Um, so with that, you know, you know, we're not looking in crystal balls here. You know, you guys have been doing this for a long time. So let's make some predictions. Um, how do you think the defense bill will end up for the Air Force? So I'd like to start with General Deptula and then we'll go with you, Doug. Um, well, Slick, um, you're not going to see any dramatic uh, changes. I think the F-35 buy is going to get uh, plussed up a bit. Um, some divestments will be allowed as they simply make sense. Um, you, we've talked about that in the last uh, uh, 30, 40 minutes or so uh, because the aircraft are literally falling apart. Uh, EA J-Stars, old tankers, old C-130s. Uh, then there are going to be more studies required because that's a way uh, to kick the can down the road on issues that are too touchy to make a decision today. So that's my short take. My big prediction is you've seen tremendous concern amongst uh, a significant block of members, bipartisan, that the Department of Defense did not factor in for the current inflation we're seeing. That is a massive impact on the Air Force, especially because of fuel. And that is a huge, huge factor in the budget. So I think you're going to see a writ large 
plus up in some areas for the Department of Defense. The Air Force should be a beneficiary of that. You're going to see a pretty healthy pay raise because obviously inflation, uh, servicemen and women need need that adjustment in what they're getting. Um, but I think in terms of programs, the real danger for the service here is that because they ran the margins very thin on the budget they submitted, and there was a lot of risk in it, especially on this near-term capacity piece, and they know Congress is going to probably do a plus-up. They did it last year. They'll probably do it again today. They are surrendering that decision-making authority to members who are probably going to be more and all likely to to support parochial interests versus where the service leaders want to drive the future. And so do you want to buy uh, upgrades for, for legacy planes that, that probably should be moved on or, or just lock them up, or do you want to buy into the future in, in some of the areas that are important priorities? And I don't understand why they would surrender that card. But if, if I was uh, king for the day, F-35 this year definitely has got to go back up to 48. Um, B-21, just keep doubling down on it. KC-46, move that along. Uh, T-7 has got to get on the ramp fast. I mean, just push it up. The programs we need to succeed are here today. Uh, and, and just realize that. We've already sunk the cost. They're working well. Just buy them. All right. Well, gentlemen, break, break. Ukraine, what's new? General Deptula, you go first. Um, well, I guess what probably is the biggest thing we've seen recently is uh, Putin is uh, beginning to weaponize food by blockading Ukrainian grain export by sea. Now, given Putin and Russia's uh, unconscionable and egregious crimes against humanity and the barbaric actions of uh, the Russian military, this really shouldn't come as a surprise. Russia is also now hoarding its own food exports as a form of blackmail, uh, holding back supplies to increase global prices and trading wheat in exchange for political support. So he's using hunger and food to wield power. The Russians have done this before. Uh, millions of Ukrainians lost their lives in a horrific famine that was induced by the Russians against the Ukrainians in the early 30s there was a direct result of Stalin's cruelty. So today, Putin's channeling is inner Stalin. Now, regardless of that, uh, Putin's war looks to have become unwinnable from his perspective, whatever his spin that his propaganda agencies put on the situation. Ukraine, meanwhile, shows courage and tenacity uh, in their defensive battles. Uh, they've been demonstrating strategic patience in letting the tired Russian army exhaust its reserves in ill-planned attacks uh, and trains fresh battalions equipped with Western weapons. Uh, the threat of a penetrating Ukrainian counteroffensive is apparent for Russian commanders, but they can't prepare defensive positions because Putin's orders demand pushing forward. Um, what I tell you, kind of to sort of where we are, is neither Russia's gradually degrading economy nor the badly damaged military machine can sustain the protracted war of attrition uh, that is uh, ongoing. And this is the course Putin is committed to. So his only hope is that Ukraine will break under the pain of a continuous uh, irresponsible bombardment uh, particularly aimed at civilians, uh, but he seems unable to understand the unbreakable will of the Ukrainians uh, to fight for their state. 
So that's kind of my take on where we are right now. Awesome. And what about you, Doug? The most important aspect to this entire conflict right now is time. So General Teptula hit upon some of the concerns of the global economy. There are also fissures that could emerge um, in a more pronounced fashion in the EU. Obviously, we have economic pressures here in the United States that are very, very important to consider. The Ukrainians' literal survival is a matter of time in, in many ways when you look at what they're facing. And the administration is pursuing a gradualism approach where they are parceling out additive weapons capabilities given to the Ukrainians in a onesie-twosie fashion over a long period of time, which is giving Putin the benefit of time. If you look at his power projection forces, they are set up in a very linear fashion where they have their fielded forces all stacked up, do heavy bombardment, move forward a little bit, again, heavy bombardment, move forward a little bit. I can think of no other better target for air power than those kind of forces. They are easily targeted, and they could be decimated rapidly, and you could end this thing fast. By holding back the military capabilities necessary to do that, we are empowering all of these corrosive forces that are facing the Ukrainians. And you know, whether it's the European coalition, our pressures, you, know, you name it, we're allowing the clock to run on this, and it just gets worse. And so I would say gradualism is actually crossing moral lines because it is extending suffering on so many levels. And we need to stop asking what happens if we give the Ukrainians something and instead ask what happens if we don't push it up. And that is a very dangerous point. And the closer we get to next year's winter when home heating fuel and everything else is in demand, um, it's going to get bad. And so we have got to grow up and get on with it. Gradualism is a ticket to lose. If I could add something in real fast. I know General Deptula mentioned wheat and Doug just mentioned uh, the heating oil prices. Something that I've tracked pretty closely recently is this shift away from just a military strategy in Ukraine to that holistic approach where they're leveraging different industries that they've got their footholds in. And a good example is in military equipment with India and using that as a, a key over them to sway their international opinion. And we also see that more recently with the OPEC countries, where, as, as mentioned, oil prices are very high, and Russia is very likely to try to maintain that high price and even push for further higher prices, if they can, with their leverage, in order to try to you know, drain the economic power behind the coalition that they face. Yeah, we're definitely getting into a, a tit-for-tat with sanctions and economic pressures. And, uh, yeah, obviously, the, at the end of the day, uh, it's, it's real people, real families that, that are the losers in all of this. So, uh, Dan, I appreciate you being patient. I really do want to uh, quickly switch over to China because, you know, it's been making its rounds in the Pacific, and they've met with leaders in the Solomon Islands and a bunch of other small countries in the, in the region. So what's up with all of this, and why should we care? Yeah, thanks for the question, Slick. Uh, and I think this bears a little bit of context, but the real crux of the issue is China seeking overseas basing. So things like access to facilities like ports and airstrips. And one of the things that, as I mentioned with Russia, China is also seeing is that having allies and partners abroad is a good thing, especially when it comes to conflict. And so they're trying to establish that kind of relationship right now in the Pacific 
whether or not that's the, the best area to pursue, I think, bears a little bit of uh, consideration. So something that we've seen recently is China has a growing navy. They have been building ships right and left, and they've also been building up capacity for more overseas operations. One of the things they've really focused is on their Y-20 heavy lift aircraft. And so having these partnerships in the Pacific and the Pacific Islands allows them to actually capitalize on having these new platforms and start to build a more overseas combat capacity. Um, but that being said, a lot of the deals that they've put together have not really ended up coming to fruition. The Solomon Island deal is actually a good example of that, right? The concern from the U.S. side is that it's a very broad deal and it's open-ended, which leaves the potential for China to actually house military on those islands. Um, but, you know, despite this, and take it with a grain of salt, both the Solomon Islands and China have said that that's not their intent. Um, obviously, it does open up the doors for that kind of effort, and uh, that is something to be concerned about. So a little bit more broadly in the region, there's also been recent reporting of a potential Chinese base in Cambodia at the Reem Naval Base, which is in the Gulf of Thailand. Um, that, you know, it might not actually be happening, but it would fall in line with the overall strategy to pursue that overseas capability and have places where they could station their assets. And then the most recent thing that happened was Wang Yi went to a bunch of different Pacific islands on a week-long trip, uh, which primarily the biggest meeting was in Fiji with the Pacific Island Forum, and he was trying to bring a holistic economic and security deal to fruition with that group. It failed. Not surprisingly, Micronesia, the Federated States of Micronesia, decided that they thought it was going to start the next world war if they picked sides and allowed China to use them as a basing source. Um, so I think the main takeaway here is that China is really not good at multilateral agreements. They don't really understand how to make all of the separate stakeholders convene on a single set of interests. So they work with a lot of bilateral agreements. And actually, we saw in those meetings, a lot of bilateral agreements came out of those meetings, which would facilitate China to develop their relationships further. But they don't have the sway that they thought they did in the region to make something large like a multilateral happen. All right, Dan, so what is the U.S. doing about this? Yeah, so obviously there's a struggle for influence in that region. And one thing that the Biden administration recently put forward was the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which is a good start. But I think what we really need to be doing is to be taking into consideration what these islands want and what they need. And that's something that we have really not done well in the past. The islands are really concerned about climate change, think literally flooding their islands. They're worried about food security, they're worried about infrastructure, and they're worried about connectivity. As I mentioned with China, China's really good at building infrastructure. They have put forward a strong message on climate change, and they are willing to put dollars down into the islands to build critical things that the islands need for their economic development. With the U.S., we don't have that clear picture. So when we send money over there, it gets distributed uh, through the framework that we have, and it's not directly attributable to the U.S. And all of this is just to say that if we don't 
take a really hard look at what the Pacific Islands need, what they want, and establish those relationships. When conflict does occur, it'll be very difficult to figure out which camp these islands will fall into. And it is not a zero-sum game, but if something kicks off in the Pacific Islands and it comes down to where can I station my boats and where can I station my planes, that's going to be a very, very difficult call for those islands to make. Now, Dan, that's really good. And I think it's important to remind people that these islands matter. We kind of spent all of 1942, 1943, 1944, and 1945 fighting for them with hundreds of thousands of Americans putting their lives on the line in very difficult situations. Yeah, that is a great point, and, and I'm really thankful for you guys all being here. It's been a little while since we've done a rendezvous, so it's uh, it's great to get these topics uh, out on the table. So just want to say thanks. I know we're, uh, we're a little long on time, but uh, thanks to everybody for making time today. You bet, uh, Slick. Have a great day. Thanks, Slick. Hey, you take care. All right, see you guys next time. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.